O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Your support, uh, rather you support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 22 is our text. Although while we're turning to that, I will say that I'm not expounding uh, these 22 verses in full. I'm, uh, this is more of an occasional uh, sermon, uh, but we will be dealing uh, with aspects of the of verses 1 through 22. We'll read verses 1 through 26. First Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I have labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection 
of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Let us go before the Lord now in our prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. Remain standing as you're able to do so. Be seated as we turn to our psalm of preparation, uh, rather hymn of preparation, 140 in the Trinity Hymnal. Amen. Amen. At the turn of the 20th century, a popular English novelist authored a work of fiction called When It Was Dark, the story of a great conspiracy. The plot centers on the efforts of a wealthy unbeliever to discredit Christianity by casting doubt on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the storyline, a man hires corrupt archaeologists to fake a discovery of the remains of Jesus' body in a tomb near Jerusalem. In the tomb was a message testifying that Joseph of Arimathea removed the body of Jesus from the original tomb and transferred it to this second tomb where the message was found. 
The novel goes on to describe the ultimate effect of such a discovery, if accepted as truth, upon the Christian church and upon civilization in general. Christians abandon the faith in droves. The church crumbles and collapses. Men and women, boys and girls, plunge back into lust and corruption. The flame of hope goes out of every human heart. Do these effects seem exaggerated to you? Would the church really collapse if Christ's resurrection were to be discredited in this way and accepted as truth? Would there be a massive departure of believers from the faith, from the church? Would there be a massive decline in morality? Would all hope be lost? Most of us would admit that the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ is important. But I'm not quite sure that we consider it to be so essential that discrediting the resurrection would destroy the church and would cause such a great collapse in society. Yet when we read the Apostle Paul, indeed the whole of the Bible, it becomes plain that the novelist's assertions aren't far-fetched at all. The Apostle reasons that if the resurrection could be discredited, Christianity is overthrown. In the passage we've read here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the Christian faith stands or falls on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the basis of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, the great Presbyterian theologian Charles Hodge declared, the resurrection of Christ is not only asserted in the Scriptures, but is also declared to be the fundamental truth of the gospel. Consider the centrality of Christ's resurrection to your faith today. We'll look at two things. In the first place, the resurrection is central to Messiah's revelation in Scripture. The resurrection is central to Messiah's revelation in Scripture. Secondly, the resurrection is central to Messiah's redemptive work. The resurrection is central to Messiah's redemptive work work. In the first place then, the resurrection is central to Messiah's revelation in Scripture. Here in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4, Paul reminds his readers of the gospel that he preached 
to them. What is the gospel? Uh, Recently in our adult Sunday school class, uh, our elder asked that question as we studied the, the doctrine of justification and as we're studying through uh, Galatia, the book of Galatians, what is the gospel? And Paul summarizes for us in verses 3 and 4, uh, he, he answers that question for us. He puts in summary fashion for us what the gospel is. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel, Paul says, in which his readers stand and by which they are saved if they continue in their belief unless they believed in vain. Verses 1 and 2 here. And in verses 12 through 14, it becomes clear that the particular aspect of their faith in question, when he, when he, when he says to his readers, this is the gospel you've received, this is the gospel you've heard from us, this is the gospel you believe, this is the gospel in which you stand, unless you believed in vain, the particular aspect of their faith is the resurrection of Christ. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some, of, uh, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also in vain. Also in verses 16 uh, and, and following here, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, and your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. You see how see how, put, how much stock Paul puts on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, how central it is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can say with Charles Hodge, and the basis of what the Apostle Paul says that the, that the resurrection of Christ is the fundamental truth of the gospel. Note the repetition in verses 3 and 4, according to the scriptures. What scriptures? What scriptures were available to God's people when Paul wrote? 1 Corinthians, the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is basing his arguments concerning the the resurrection of Christ on the Old Testament scriptures. And that's where we'll turn first this morning to the shadows of the Old Testament scriptures to see that there God has established for us uh, the, the Uh, In the shadows of Old Testament revelation, he's established for us the doctrine of the resurrection of the Messiah. First, in general prophecy, the the Old Testament predicted 
that the Messiah would be one that conquered sin and its effects. And since death itself is one of the effects of sin, it was therefore to be expected that the Messiah would conquer death as, as well. Accordingly, the resurrection was implied in the general prophecies concerning the resurrection of Christ. And so as early as Genesis 15, it is foretold that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the one who was instrumental in bringing sin and death into the world, the serpent of old, Satan himself. Paul views Christ's resurrection as, the, as a fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy, chapter 13, verse 14, that death's sting would be removed. We're looking at this passage uh, this evening. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have, been, will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying uh, that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The consequence of Messiah's resurrection upon humanity is then heralded in the prophets, as well as in uh, the book of Job, Isaiah 26, verse 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, verse 2, Many of those who, are, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, contempt. Job 19, verse 26, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. And then, in specific prophecy... For example, in the prophecy that we read this morning, David's prophecy in Psalm 16, David predicted the resurrection of the Messiah there in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, Peter wrestles with this, uh, this passage at Psalm 16 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he makes it clear uh, we're not left to our own uh, by the Holy Spirit through uh, the Apostle Peter recorded in, uh, in uh, Luke's Acts of the Apostles. We have uh, an interpretation of Psalm 16. And he says, uh, David died. David went to, to the grave. David, David's body did decay. He did undergo decay. Peter says, well, who, who, is, who is he speaking of? Well, he's speaking of the Messiah. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would come, the one who would be raised from the dead, that God would not allow his Holy One, Christ, to undergo decay. And therefore, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Christ cited the Old Testament 
from Moses and all the prophets, Luke 24, 25 to 27, to prove to his disciples the necessity of the Messiah's suffering and entrance into his glory. And then when Jesus subsequently appeared to the larger gathering of his disciples in Jerusalem, he explained all the things written about him, notice, in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning his death, burial, and resurrection, Luke 24, 44 to 46. So we've got this corpus of material in the inspired Old Testament scriptures, in the shadows uh, that testify that Paul leverages to speak of the centrality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the importance of this truth to the gospel here in 1 Corinthians verse 15. And then what was revealed in the shadows of the Old Testament, of course, always comes to light in the New Testament. So what do we find? We find uh, that the resurrection was central to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When the, when the Pharisees, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, asked for a sign, Jesus said that none would be given except for the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish and was raised up to preach to the Ninevites, the Son of Man, uh, Christ's self-designation as Messiah would be three days in the heart of the earth and rise, and that in the resurrection the men of Nineveh, Nineveh would rise to condemn the unbelieving generation of scribes and Pharisees because the Ninevites repented at Jonah's preaching, but the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees did not repent at the preaching of the greater Jonah the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. The synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each record three separate occasions when Jesus foretold his death and suffering to his disciples. In eight out of nine of these instances, Jesus refers to his resurrection, saying, the Son of Man will be raised up Or three days later, he will rise again from the dead. Now, the disciples were slow to understand this. But Luke informs us in that 24th chapter, verses 1 to 9, that when the angel reminded the women uh, who came to Christ's tomb that morning of his resurrection, when the angels reminded them of Christ's prediction. Of his resurrection, they remembered what Jesus had so that Jesus had spoken so often about it, and they went and told the eleven remaining apostles. All of the gospels emphasize our Lord's appearances to the apostles and the 
and the other disciples as well, but none more than John, who devotes the last two chapters of his gospel to Christ's resurrection appearances. John tells us why these resurrection appearances receive so much attention as he pauses to take a breath in between his description of those resurrection appearances in chapter 20 and chapter 21, he says at the end of chapter 20, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, including the greatest of all of his his signs, that is his resurrection, these, he says, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is Christ's resurrection, central. It is, John says, Paul says, the fundamental truth of the gospel. As a believer in in Christ, the Spirit bears witness to you that these things are true. Paul points to these resurrection appearances himself here in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. He also appeared to me. The gospel bears witness through the testimony of the scriptures, both in the shadows of the Old Testament scriptures and in the light of the New Testament scriptures that Jesus was risen from the dead. But only the Holy Spirit can convince you ultimately of this truth. The, 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 the Bible presents these convincing truths. The, uh, it predicts the, the, the resurrection of Christ in these prophecies. It presents these uh, eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But uh, we continue to have the resurre- attempts uh, to discredit uh, the resurrection of uh, our, our Savior. Uh, perpetu- they're perpetual. We, we see them... Uh, you see the human imagination at work. You, you, it, people are clever. They, they can come up with all kinds of reasons as to why it couldn't possibly be uh, that Jesus was truly arisen from the dead. But here, uh, here is the proof. Here is, um, here is the biblical evidence that the Holy Spirit uses in our hearts to convince us that our Savior has risen from the dead. And the resurrection then became a focal point of 
the preaching and teaching in the apostolic church. I remember in a seminary, my Hebrew professor once made a remark as to how central the resurrection is to the book of Acts. And I think it was about, I think it was during my seminary uh, studies that I began uh, to read through the Bible every year. Uh, I think at the beginning of my, my seminary studies, I started to read through the scriptures every year. And I began to look at the book of Acts. Uh, and I began to see uh, what, uh, as I read through it more carefully, I began to notice these references to the resurrection of Christ. And then as I preached through the book here uh, some years ago, uh, even more so, uh, it, it became, I became uh, aware of how, just how true what that Hebrew professor had said, that, uh, that the sun finally rose on the darkened hearts of the disciples as they began to preach the gospel of Christ, and they began to preach the resurrection of the Christ, and we discover the corpus of that activity in the book of Acts. After the resurrection, Peter shows that he had finally gotten the message when he argued for the necessity of Judas' replacement among those who had been present from Christ's baptism to his ascension, saying that they must select someone who would be witness with them of his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Peter, it's Peter, I've already mentioned, who preaches on the day of Pentecost and and mentions uh, the resurrection of, of, of Christ more than once. Uh, Acts 2.24, prior to that reference to uh, uh, David's prediction of of the Messiah's resurrection in in, uh, Psalm 16, uh, Peter said, God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. And then in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we read that the Jewish leaders arrested Peter and John for preaching the resurrection. Not for preaching the gospel, but for preaching the resurrection of Christ. And Luke gives this summary of of the apostles' continuing ministry in chapter 4 and verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and abundant grace was upon them all. And so, no surprise, God raises up another apostle uh, named Paul, and he preaches the resurrection to the philosophers at Mars Hill in Athens, Acts 17, 18, at his trial before the Sanhedrin, before Felix as well, Paul proclaimed, I am on trial for the hope of Not the gospel, but for the hope of the resurrection. And before Agrippa, Paul preached the resurrection, Acts 26, verse 23. So I hope you see how central 
the resurrection of Christ is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to move on then secondly to see that the resurrection is central to Messiah's redemptive work. Christ's work of accomplishing redemption rested on his resurrection. All of Christ's claims and the success of his work rest on the fact that he arose, and that's what Paul says so emphatically here in verses 17 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. All of us are still in our sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ, have also perished. And if we have pinned all of our hopes in Christ in this life and in Christ only, Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. Had he not risen, then his teaching would have been false. Christ's own teaching would have been false because he would have been a victim of death under its power in the end and not a victor over death as he claimed he would be. When Jesus went to the grave, the accomplishment of redemption for his elect people hung in the balance. It would stand or fall on the resurrection from the dead. By rising from the dead, he conquered sin and death, crowning his work on the cross and proving himself to be Messiah, the Son of God, and proving the gospel itself to be true. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4 that the resurrection was the vindication and declaration of Christ's deity to us. He was declared, Paul writes there, the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So Christ's work of accomplishing redemption rests on the resurrection. The Holy Spirit's work of applying Christ's redemption depended on the resurrection. According to Old Testament prophecy, Jesus promised the outpouring of his Spirit upon his resurrection and ascension. If Christ arose, then the gift of the Holy Spirit would be poured out on his church, poured out on the apostles, poured out upon the church, just as he had promised, just as he had assured. Notice the progression that we find in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, Verses 46 to 49, uh, it's that passage that I, I cited earlier when he said to uh, his disciples, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed from on high with power. And what was that power? It was the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's ministry in redemption, in applying the redemption of Christ to the hearts of his people is null and void if Christ hadn't risen from the dead. The work of the Holy Spirit is to apply salvation to uh, the believer. And so the accomplishment and the application of salvation hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what we're saying is, is this, the very power and efficacy of the gospel depends on the resurrection. Christ's resurrection is declared in Scripture to be the means through which God accomplished your redemption. With respect to the new birth, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. With respect to justification by faith, faith is the instrument of justification. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Paul represents the resurrection as the event upon which your faith, and therefore your justification, which is by faith, stands or falls. With respect to sanctification as well, in Philippians 3, verses 10 through 12, we've read that this morning. Paul relates sanctification to knowing the power of Christ's resurrection, being conformed to Christ's death and attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He's speaking there, again, of our sanctification. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection and your glorification. In Romans 8, 29, and 30, Paul teaches the certainty of your glorification. We're going to speak about that glorification tonight in verses 50 through 58 here in chapter 15. You remember what Paul says there, whom he predestined, in, in Romans 8, 29, and 30, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. In 1 Corinthians 20, the apostle gives us the ground for the certainty of our resurrection from the dead. 
our bodily resurrection, which is a subset of glorification. The Old Covenant offering that Christ refers to when he says that, or Paul refers to when, when he says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, that Old Covenant offering of, of the first fruits is what guaranteed the remainder of the harvest. They brought the first fruits in obedience to God's law, and, and the remainder of the harvest was, uh, was, was guaranteed by that offering of, of the first fruits. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15.20 is that because of that Christ has been raised from the dead, the believer's resurrection from the dead and, and glorification is also certain. Because of the certainty of Christ's resurrection, Thomas Watson could write, we are sure to rise out of our graves than out of our beds. Christ's resurrection, then, is the world's greatest hope. The great hope and comfort of all believers. Humanity's great hope isn't the cure of the most dreaded diseases. We so often hear about claims that one day all diseases will be cured and there will be no more death. But these, while efforts to, to cure diseases are to be applauded, there's one disease that will never be cured, of which all sicknesses and diseases are symptomatic. Death itself. A cure for death will never be found no matter what anyone claims, because God has already said that it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. But Christ has conquered sin, and he's conquered death for believers, and therefore they have the great assurance that they'll never experience eternal death, because just as their souls have been given new life, Upon their death, so shall their bodies be given new life and resurrected on the last day. That ought to be uh, not simply uh, a great hope for heaven itself and all of, all of its glories, but, but great hope for us in this life because of the bodily afflictions that all of us undergo in one way or another. I hope I've convinced you that Christ's resurrection is the fundamental truth of the gospel. Proclaimed in the shadows of the Old Testament, brought to full light in the New Testament. Two things by way of final application. First, 
believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you didn't get a chance to read the meditation this morning, this is a very appropriate in this regard, what Jesus said to Martha. Remember, Jesus came to Martha and, and uh, the first thing that she said to him when he delayed for three days is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He's promising her that her brother will experience eternal life. And then he says to her, do you believe this? And I say to you this morning, I ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We confess this, don't we? We confess that we believe in the resurrection of of Christ in our creeds. For example, in the Nicene Creed, we, we confess that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation was crucified, was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. We aren't merely confessing here our knowledge of the facts of Christ's resurrection, uh, the facts of his death, the fact of his burial and resurrection on the third day. Or we're not merely giving our sins. We're not simply saying, yes, we agree with what the Bible says about Christ's resurrection. We're confessing that we trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us to the uttermost. We're confessing that we believe in the power that the Bible ascribes to Christ's resurrection. Think about the next. Uh, think about that the next time you confess your faith. Think about it as a confession that you have trusted, and you are trusting in Christ's resurrection for your full and complete redemption. So believe it. Believe in the power, the saving power of Christ's resurrection to deliver you from life, uh, from death to life and to wholly redeem you body and soul. But then draw greater hope and assurance in your Christian experience from the power of Christ's resurrection. I remind you of that strong connection that Paul makes in Philippians 3 verses 10 and 11 between Christ's resurrection power and our final state of perfection in the bodily resurrection. This is our goal, uh, to be conformed to the resurrection of Christ, to know the power of of Christ's resurrection, and to be conformed to the resurrection of Christ.
And Paul says, you need to look to that resurrection. In, in your Christian experience, uh, it needs to be inculcated in, in our Christian experience. This desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection that we might ourselves, because, and why? Because that's where we're headed. We're headed to full conformity to Christ in his resurrection, to be like him, body and soul, perfected. Our hope in the resurrection, Peter says, in that passage we read earlier, not a dead hope, but a living hope. Our hope for redemption is certain. Our salvation is sure because our Jesus is alive. He is our living hope. The testimony of Scripture in the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament with their, their emphasis on Christ's resurrection are designed to fill us with hope and assurance because the Scriptures themselves are alive, and every, every time you interact with this living word, you're interacting with the living Christ who speaks to us by the Spirit's power through his word. Every time you're hearing preaching, you're interacting with the living word where Christ speaks. And they're designed to fill us with this hope and, and this assurance in our Christian experience, because the word is alive. The scriptures are alive. I listened this week to a social activist's speech before a Senate legislature who called upon the members of that body to stop relying upon an ancient, dead, irrelevant document to oppose the immoral position that this advocate was advocating. And there's no question but that the document referred to was the Bible. Conversely, God says his word is not dead, but living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's testimony of Christ's resurrection from the dead, so central throughout the teaching of Scripture, is our greatest hope and comfort in this life. So whatever arguments Christ's enemies present in their attempts to discredit his resurrection, believe in the Holy Spirit's witness through the inspired writers of Holy Scripture concerning this fundamental truth of the gospel, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
eternal and merciful Father, we turn to you. Having been overwhelmed by your word with the powerful evidence of the powerful resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would, we would never fall prey to foolish people seeking to discredit the resurrection. However clever they may be, O Lord, cause us to rely upon the wisdom and the power of your word. We pray, O Father, that we might be conformed to Christ and his resurrection, that we, uh, that this, that, that that resurrection Uh, even as was so evident in Paul's life, would in our lives experientially become vivid for us to be able to, to, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to be conformed to to attain to the the resurrection of the dead. Lord, we pray that you would perfect us. And we ask, O Lord, that you, you would cause the word preached to resonate in our hearts as we go about the rest of our Sabbath day and the rest of our week and the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.